Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Dove and Rose podcast. This is Walter Emerson. Thank you for joining me. Uh, for those who uh, are just now catching up or maybe listening for the first time, uh, I'm currently in season five doing uh, the story of St. Joan of Arc as told through the uh, book by Régine Pernoud, the uh, famous French historian called Joan of Arc, Her Story. And up to this point uh, in my podcast, I've been discussing uh, the phenomenological approach that I have taken in discovering the powerful impact of St. Joan of Arc and St. Therese in my life. So I encourage you to go back and listen to those. So I kind of started there with, you know, really how this whole uh, devotion and phenomenology started. And then I got up to season five and decided I wanted to actually tell the story of St. Joan through using Régine Pernoud's book because she's she writes in a very phenomenological uh, fashion. So I hope that you'll enjoy that and I hope you're enjoying this. Now, while I'm at it, it is important to reiterate, as I have done in some previous podcasts, that uh, I am the co-host of Another podcast that discusses St. Joan of Arc and St. Therese, and that is called Heroic Hearts. So you can find it at heroic-hearts.com, heroic-hearts.com. And I co-host that with Amy Chase. So what you'll find are uh, season one, which is on St. Joan of Arc, told through the this, the lens and the story told by Mark Twain. So, you know, a couple of things. That's a different perspective. It's similar and is just as edifying as Régine Pernoud's. It is a great starter book for anyone interested in St. Joan of Arc. And our first uh, season really goes through that. And you can hear Amy and I both discuss it as opposed to just me. And so I'm giving you something that's a different perspective. Um, that Heroic Hearts really talks more about just the story of Joan as told through Mark Twain and, and what that means to us and can mean to us in today's world. And what I'm emphasizing is something a, a little bit different as I tell the story, and that is a different way, looking at Joan again, looking at what we've already seen in Joan, but through a different perspective. And so that's what I'm trying to accomplish by now using Régine Pernoud's book. So the main thing is we want to learn about St. Joan of Arc. We want to bring her into our lives and our hearts as she is a fantastic saint who the Lord has obviously called to bring great graces, uh, great graces to us. Now, my uh, podcast and my Substack site are called the Dove and Rose, and of course, for those who have read or have listened, know that when I talk about Saint Joan of Arc, I'm always talking about someone else too, and that would be Saint Therese of Lisieux. Because I, uh, you know, I always say that Saint Therese is really the, the hermeneutic. She's really the one that interpreted Saint Joan for me, 
it's really through St. Therese's heart that I came to know St. Joan. So I always kind of mean both of them in a certain way. That's why it's called the Dove and Rose. The Dove is named, uh, is Joan of Arc, because when she was executed at the stake, an English soldier saw a dove flying from the flames and headed toward free, free France. And of course, St. Therese, for those of you who know her, is the rose. As she promised to shower us with roses from heaven when she got there, and she certainly has done that. Now, with that in mind, uh, I, I actually want to open with a, a couple of paragraphs from a book about St. Therese, but I think it really applies greatly to what we are getting ready to talk about with St. Joan of Arc uh, as we move forward in uh, Regine Pernude's book. Because we have Joan up to, uh, she's been armored, she's been given her armor, her, um, uh, her, her army, her household, you know, all the people, the pages, the secretaries, she's been given all that. And we've told the story of how she got to that point, and I encourage you to go back and listen to those. And now she's, she's moved up the Loire to Orléans, and she now is, is at Orléans. And she first, this is the first time she's met Dunois, who is the, you know, the, the, the captain, sort of the, the lord of Orléans, while uh, while the the uh, Charles the uh, the Lord of uh, Orleans, the cousin to the king, is has been captured and is with the English, and so his half brother, Dunois, is now sort of running running things. And if you remember way back in the beginning, he was very important. He kind of opens the book. Uh, where he senses, he's heard about someone, some mystery, some maiden who is out there coming to go visit the future king. And we talked a lot about that sort of phenomenological orientation that that Dunois uh, has. We're going to see more of that here. So I think we're into several paragraphs of Joan's story that are extremely important. And, and I think what I'd like to do is actually introduce it from a book on St. Therese. It's called My Vocation is Love, St. Therese's Way to Total Trust. And it's written by Jean LaFrance, who, according to the back of the book, um, lived from 1931 to 1999, was ordained for the Diocese of uh, Lea, France in 1963, and so he did a number of, of writings and things like that. And so he wrote this book, My Vocation is Love, St. Therese's Way to Total Trust. And the very opening introduction, uh, the two paragraphs are, are what I want to share because this is really going to relate to how we really think about St. Joan. And, 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 and again, St. Therese, even through the voice of someone writing about her, is serving as a hermeneutic for us, serving as a way to think about Joan of Arc. So um, he says um, in the opening to his book, if Jesus Christ rose from the dead and is alive, 
he must be living somewhere, and we must be able to find his address so that we can meet and make contact with him. If there is no place to contact him, then affirming Jesus' resurrection can remain on the level of mere discussion. Of course, there are special places where we can meet Jesus. I'm thinking in particular of the Eucharist and the Gospel. But I wonder if I would immediately give these two addresses to someone who expresses the desire to see Jesus. Reading the Gospel may not be the first way to find him, but it is by no means the last. I believe that if Jesus is living today, he can be met in those men and women we call the saints, persons who can say with St. Paul, it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. So the first step to seeing Jesus is to meet the saints and observe how they live. After that, we should read the gospel to understand what makes that person tick, what makes him or her a saint, that is, one in whom the risen Christ is living. So I think that's a, that's a beautiful uh, dis- discussion about uh, what I've been trying to say with regard to the dove and rose and these, this, this great devotion that I have and I hope you have and I hope many, many people have to the great saints of St. Joan of Arc and St. Therese of Lisieux. Um, and, to, of course, to Mother Mary, something that I don't always mention, but is always uh, presupposed in anything I say, is true devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Everything that I do through St. Jonah, St. Therese, really orients itself to the heart of the Blessed Virgin Mary and to true devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary. And I'm consecrated both by means of St. Louis de Montfort's consecration as well as St. Maximilian Colby's. And so I don't always necessarily mention it, but it's always presupposed. And of course, presupposed behind that is the fact that uh, no one leads us better, more quickly, more efficiently, more beautifully to Jesus and the Sacred Heart than does Mother Mary. So ultimately, this is all tied to uh, uh, devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary. And, and of course, ultimately then to devotion to Jesus Christ, the Holy Trinity, and, and quite honestly, a great sort of love affair with the Holy Spirit. Uh, sometimes don't always talk about it, but, but ultimately it comes to this, this great love that I feel, I believe is ultimately leads and bubbles up. And in and, and St. Edith Stein's terms, when she analyzes the Dionysian hierarchy um, in, the, in, uh, in St. Thomas's writings, that, that it's, it's really leading us up to sort of the stairway to the Holy Trinity, to Jesus Christ, our Savior, and to a great love affair with the Holy Spirit. So at the end of the day, I hope that if nothing else, that through this devotion to St. Joan and St. Therese, you'll find a great devotion to Our Lady, the Blessed Virgin, to, of course, Jesus Christ, our Savior, and, and to the Father in heaven, and to a great love affair with the Holy Spirit. And so with that little opening, what I want to do is, is now kind of move to Joan of Arc and talk a little bit. There's really just a few paragraphs here. So we, we have her up in, in Orléans. And now, as you recall, 
she was not very happy when she got to Orleans and she met Dunois. <laughs> and uh, Dunois had one of those first meetings with his superior that none of us really want to have. Most of us, uh, when we go meet our new boss, right, we like to have a little bit of friendly small talk or something, <laughs> say, well, well, it's nice to meet you and everything. And Joan realized a little bit too late that she'd kind of been tricked. Joan had her army ready. They were confessed. They were armed. They were ready. Joan's idea was we're not marching to go camp out for a while. We're marching to Orleans and, and we're just going to take on, we're just going to march right in and just take on the English and, and run them out. That, that, that's not an exaggeration. That, that is literally what she was thinking. And she was upset because the French captains being cautious and, and you know, and, and um, they've been through quite a bit and they didn't really carry that supernatural confidence that Joan did. And they thought, well, let's don't tell her, but it'd be, we know as the wise captains that we are that it would be much safer. Let's go up the south side of the wire and let's not engage the English right away. And then, well, don't worry, we'll get her up there. She was not happy when she found that out. She, she realized she was on the wrong side of the river when they got there. And she kind of chewed out uh, Dunois when he came out and said, oh, are you the, are you the maid? And, you know, we welcome you. We are so happy to have you here. And she basically starts off with, you know, are you the, are you the leader here? And are you the one responsible for this? And why am I on the wrong side of the, of the river? So his first meeting did not, uh, uh, his first encounter did not probably go the way most of us would want it to go. And he was learning what it was like to deal with Joan of Arc. And mind you, this is a young 17-year-old young lady from uh, the far, kind of out in the boondocks, that's talking to a member of the royal lineage who's who is the head of the uh, head of the army there so that's that's quite a thing now what uh, what regine i want to kind of go through what regine says and i want to talk about it and particularly in light of the introduction i gave you on saint therese so regine pernoud says and and this is um in her victory at orleans chapter um Whatever annoyance the bastard, now the bastard, of course, was Dunois. Uh, that's not a, a vulgar term. That's, that's an official um, term used uh, in as far as the royal families go. You have to distinguish who is kind of pure blood and who isn't. And so uh, Dunois was, uh, was born uh, sort of from a mistress. And uh, so he was a um, related to Charles the Dauphin, but he was uh, a half brother. And so they were called officially and, and not meant to be vulgar or derogatory, but simply to designate where they stood in the royal lineage as a bastard. Whatever annoyance the bastard may have felt would soon be dispelled by what was about to happen. He was worried about the convoy of supplies, which was downriver at Blois. See, that's where they came from. They came uh, from, that's where they got their army together. And they marched from Blois up to, uh, up to Orléans. For it would have to sail up the Loire against the current. Worse, the wind had been sl uh, blowing steadily from the east. 
Dunois reports, all of a sudden, and as though at that very moment, the wind, which had been contrary and which had absolutely prevented the ships in which were the food supplies for the city of Orléans from coming upriver, changed and became favorable. From that moment, I had good hope in her more than ever before. Okay, now, this is the same Dunois who had this very strong intuitive sense at the beginning of the book that something was going on south of the river. This was way back when Joan was coming from Vaucouleur, well before he met her, and he had heard stories, and he's kind of looking across the river into the mist, and he has a great intuition about uh, something. And then here he is again. I think this story, that paragraph, that moment with Dunois is one of the most impactful. It's one that I ref- I think of probably as much as any other event. Dunois didn't forget this. This was no little uh, sort of emotional thing. A quarter of a century later at her trial of, um, of rehabilitation, when they were rehabilitating her name after she'd been executed, and he was he was one of the, the witnesses. He told this story. He, this was the moment of conversion for him. This was really, uh, he says later in the trial of, of rehabilitation, this was kind of his divine glance that I've talked about in previous episodes in my previous earlier seasons of The Dove and Rose. And he, he, you know, he mentions that this was really the moment when he came to believe and never looked back on his belief. And you think, just because the wind changed, that's a pretty ordinary, I mean, that could happen. It could have just happened, right? doesn't mean there was a, a miracle. It's just kind of an ordinary thing. Well, isn't that how we go through life? There are just so many supposedly or, or it seemed to be ordinary things in our lives. And yet, how often does something simple, something ordinary turn into what I call, using Therese's terms, uh, a divine glance, or using St. Edith Stein's terms as an unreflective certainty, an intuition. And, and unreflective certainty is a great term I love that, that Edith Stein uses because what it says is that it's an intuition. It's not really something I deduced or induced. It just came to me, but I'm certain of it. It's just, it's, it's a certainty as if it was been sitting there all the time. That's what happened to me in my, what I call the divine glance or the unreflective certainty uh, many years ago with regard to Joan of Arc and through the plays and poetry of St. Therese. And I had sort of one of these, you know, senses of an unreflective uh, certainty. And it's led me in pursuit of everything I've, I've been doing tirelessly and without any, uh, without any rest, you know, for the past 14 years as of this recording. And so it was a certainty that, that reoriented me and moved me in a different direction. And one in which I wanted to discover who this person was, Joan of Arc. I needed to know. And I've been pursuing that for 14 years. And um, I think the answer will only be truly given... Um, if uh, by the grace of God, if I persevere and can manage to get to heaven. And uh, so 
I, I can really appreciate, I perceive in Dunois this very same unreflective certainty, this, this divine glance that, that doesn't come from what we typically, you know, from the, the, the rationale of Aristotelian deduction and, you know, and, and again, not really from what we're used to in the church in terms of scholasticism, which is, which is highly oriented toward the Aristotelianism and Platonism uh, of the ancient Greeks, which, which is all fantastic, as you hear me say on here. I, I am, um, you know, that, that's where I was immersed and continue to be immersed in the beautiful scholasticism and the beautiful philosophy of, of the church. And, and so one of the goals, or I should say one of the uh, things I hope for out of these podcasts is to try to bring these together, to bring, because phenomenology sometimes doesn't always uh, get looked upon well in terms of the scholastic circles and vice versa. And so I think there's a way, and other people are doing this, but I think there's a way to really bring it together to where phenomenology can enrich our, our foundation in, in Catholic scholasticism. As long as we, you know, maintain the integrity of the of the scholasticism, maintain the obedience to the doctrines and dogmas, but that phenomenology within those bounds, what I call within the within the 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 guardrails of the trail of the dogmatic creed with Saint Joan and Saint Therese, as long as we stay within those guardrails, that we can, uh, you know, successfully open ourselves up to these beautiful relationships with the saints, like with St. Joan and, and St. Therese. And so I really perceive that in Dunois, that that's the kind of experience that he had. And so phenomenologically, what it is, is notice that he is seeing, she, what is Joan giving? Okay, Joan is sent by God. God is working through her. Our Lord is working through her. What is she giving? She's giving, you know, hope. She, she's giving hope. Does everybody see that? No, because they're not oriented. They're just not orienting themselves phenomenologically. And, and Dunois is oriented that way. So when he sees Joan now, after this wind changes, what he sees now is hope. And he sees something behind, hidden behind Joan, that Joan is really the appearance of hope appearing. And it takes a phenomenological orientation, an openness to getting out of your own ideology and your own certainties that you have and being willing to open yourself to the certainty God gives you and to look at it through God's perspective. And, and I think that when you read the story, that I believe certain people were gifted by the Lord and graced by the Lord to have this uh, phenomenological openness to her so that she could perform her mission. Now, the first one I'm thinking of is Jean de Metz, who brought her from Vaucouleur to Chinon. He had a similar type, unreflective certainty, and a similar type, divine glance. When she spoke to him, nobody believed her way back in Vaucouleur. Um, Robert de Baudricourt uh, didn't believe her, sent her back two or three times, said she ought to be slapped. He finally gave in because he was won over. But it was Jean de Metz who, when he asked her, you know, she, who, who is your Lord? She said that her Lord had required her. He said, who, who is your Lord? 
you know, because they have lords and knights and dukes. And and she said, God, you know, the king of heaven. And, and he immediately was transformed and immediately promised that he would take her. So, so there was a fundamental shift in Jean de Metz back then that had nothing to do with deductive logic or, like I say, Aristotelian deduction and, you know, all, the, all that kind of overtly, uh, you know, metaphysical type of thing. It was really more of a phenomenological thing where he opened himself and he received what Joan was offering. And I, and I think he received that hope as well. You know, I think he could sense the truth, the the purity in Joan, which I think every and everybody could sense the purity, the truth that she was speaking, and he could see behind the shadow of what she was giving, but that she was the the appearance of hope appearing. So there's a couple of examples I think where the door was open for Joan to go and fulfill her mission because of the phenomenological understanding and acceptance and awareness and acceptance that they of what they were really receiving was not just this young you know country girl uh, they were receiving hope she she was the appearance of hope appearing and and I think in my mind they made it possible. Jean de Metz really opened the door to having influence on getting her out of Eau towards Chinon. And Dunois obviously then will play a huge role in getting her in her success at, at Orléans. And so she, she, um, she goes on uh, Regine Pernou goes on and says that Joan's epic at Orléans began that Friday evening, April 29, 1429. As Dunois recalled the tales decades later, Joan came with me carrying her banner, which was white, and on which was the image of our Lord holding the fleur-de-lis, which is the sign of the French royalty, in his hand. With me and Lahire, who was a uh, uh, a captain that he he fought with in previous wars, she crossed the river the river Loire, and together we entered the city of Orleans. And uh, I think that's you know extremely important. I've mentioned before, and I think it's important to remember. And in fact, I think it's one of the most important things I want to eventually be drawing out is it's very clear that there's a twofold mission with Joan. It's it's very clear in her story. It is supernatural in terms of uh, the message from heaven, the fact that she told uh, Charles, the Dauphin, that Jesus is the king of France, and the natural political order. I mean, it's obvious. If Jesus is king, Jesus declared himself king of France. Now, he's, there's obviously... A twofold mission here. There's the supernatural and the natural order within sort of the political, soci- sociological, cultural sphere. Now, one of the things, and I won't address it uh, here. In fact, I'm not. I'm not able to address it with competence, other than to what I'll talk about in future episode episodes, as we discuss the phenomenology of, of Saint Joan. Is this this question everyone always asks, why was Jesus on the side of the French? 
Didn't he love the English? And the English were Catholic then too. There, there was before the, the uh, before Henry VIII had, had split away. So wh- why is Jesus picking sides? And it's a question that just uh, you can get as many answers as you can, you know, find, as you can do searches out there. And and I certainly don't have uh, the, have the answer to that. But what I, what I do want to emphasize out of that though is that the line we're going to be kind of looking for here is I have stated, and I do believe, that her twofold mission, the supernatural and the natural, has to do not with a cultural reductionism, meaning not with a superiority of, you know, the French were just superior to the, the, the English and, and Jesus liked them better and all that kind of thing. It's uh, and, and they're right about everything and the English are wrong. It's not that cultural reductionism. What, what I see is I look at Joan in the phenomenological standpoint and look at her orientation toward holiness, purity, the church, is she's pointing upward. And I've said this before. She's pointing upward to the universal kingship of Christ not in a cultural reductionism down to some superiority that Jesus likes the French better. But what she's doing is she's orienting us to the universal kingship of Christ. And that as the king, as the universal king who sees the whole master plan, has the whole master plan, that what we're trying to do is simply to, simply to make sure we're oriented the way the, the world the way that the, that our our king uh, would want it to be to be ordered and so I want to continue as we move forward in these um, in these little talks to make that differentiation because I think it's really important that we on the one hand we understand that France is is it plays a beautiful role in the kingdom of God and I think you know even I don't have the quotes with me but we can look at quotes by various popes like Pius XII or even St. John Paul II, who mentioned, you know, they keep referring to the, 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 the tradition, small t tradition, of France as the eldest daughter of the church and France's leadership in bringing the faith to Europe and, and France's leadership in educating the people. Um, and this has been referenced, you know, by, by popes like uh, John Paul II and Pius XII and Pius, I think Pius X and some others. And so this is not something we're just we're just making up. France plays a, a, a powerful and beautiful, and, and, and maybe to a certain degree preeminent role in certain respects uh, to the kingdom of God uh, on earth as it is as it is in heaven. We don't want to doubt, we don't want to miss that. But on the other hand, we want to avoid the idea that there's some sort of cultural reductionism that somehow um, you know that 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 culture is superior because it's a universal we're a universal church we christ is the king over all nations everywhere whether it's whether it's in europe or africa or asia or whatever so this is a it's a universal kingship and a universal church so it's going to be an interesting line to draw and i don't i won't pretend that i'm going to answer the question about why jesus chose uh, the, the French over the English, but I, I, I would ask you, the listener, to think with me, contemplate with me that distinction between her pointing to the universal kingship of Christ 
versus pointing down to a cultural reductionism. And so she, uh, th- this will be sort of the, the last one I want to read here. And this is, um, this is the, the, her entering Orléans. So they send the army back to come up the right side of the wire. So, so her army is being sent back, like, uh, go back and do this right. <laughs> and it's going to take them about five days to do this. So that was the first mess up by the French captains. And they're going to send the army back, the bulk of the army back, with, um, to come back up the, the correct side, according to Joan. But Dunois begged that Joan herself would stay with a contingent and that he and Lahire could take her over so she could enter Orléans. Now, you can, I, I, can, I can see that because they're going, you know, people are worked up. People want to know. The last thing they want to hear is that she was here and she turned around and went back. So I think they're thinking probably very prudently and wisely about keeping the morale up of the, of the people. And so they do talk her into her staying. So this really then will begin the period of her really, you know, five or six days stay in Orléans, really getting the hope built in the people and that um, before she, she has the, the ultimate battle to free Orléans. So I want to kind of close out with this very important uh, piece by uh, Pernoud, where the Journal of the Siege, which is a, sort of a, an official, this is an f- official document recording, like the newspaper, at the time, reported and said, and so she entered Orléans with the Bastard of Orléans at her left, very richly armed and mounted. Afterward came another noble and valiant, other noble and valiant lords, squires, captains, and men-at-arms, as well as some from the garrison and bourgeoisie of Orléans, who had gone ahead of her. From the city, other men-at-arms came to receive her, along with the bourgeois of Orléans, carrying many torches and making such joy as if they had seen God himself descend among them, and not without reason, for they had endured much difficulty, labor, pain, and fear of not being rescued and of losing all their bodies and goods. But they felt already comforted as though freed of the siege by the divine virtue that they were told resided in that simple maid, whom they regarded with strong affection, men as much as women and little children. And there was a marvelous crowd pressing to touch her or the horse on which she rode. Now, that's the official sort of newspaper version of what happened. Now, again, do you notice the importance of this statement that they they felt already comforted as though freed of the siege by the divine virtue that they were told resided in that simple maid? Now, I'll just be candid with you. That sums up very nicely the experience that I had when I talk about this divine glance, this unreflective certainty, uh, way back in 2008 when I went through the poetry and plays of Therese, uh, Joan of Arc entered my life permanently as that, that devotional figure that I knew was the one that I had to follow if I have any hope of you know, salvation. You do what the Lord wants you to do, right, if you want to find that salvation. And I felt very much in point, this is, this is your path. 
and that's never changed over these these many years. And I felt very, very, I, I really relate to this, that I felt already comforted, immediately comforted from unbelievable <laughs> distress. Uh, I was, well, that's a, probably a different story. <laughs> we went through a disastrous uh, 20, 25 years, and um, I felt immediately comforted, and I felt immediately freed of, you know, what had been chaining me down by, simp- by simply, and it felt divine. I, I felt absolutely this was a grace from God. There was never, it was an unreflective certainty. It entered my mind, I was certain, and I remained certain, and nothing can shake me from that. Um, you know, grace of God protecting me. And I felt freed by the divine virtue that they were told that that I that I could see what what that Therese told me resided in the simple maid. So just exactly like it's recorded in the newspaper at Orleans, I had that same experience: immediate comfort, immediate confidence, and felt freed from the chains, the spiritual chains, and mental and emotional chains that had held me down, and simply by what I had immediately received in an unreflective certainty through uh, the grace of, of the, the presentation of Joan of Arc through the heart and interpretation of St. Therese of Lycia. And so there's something very, very powerful and very, very real and grace-filled and something uh, just marvelous and now you can see why I am so enthused about uh, trying to tell you more and more about St. Joan of Arc, and uh, particularly through the eyes and heart and hermeneutics of St. Therese. So I'll leave you with that for now. And uh, so we didn't really move that far, but I think it was one of the most important episodes, really, that I've done to date is this particular one because there's so much there's so much about and i think a lot of people would overlook it and i think this is where phenomenology really helps us see it's very easy in a just a purely reading of history to just go okay she came up and she was mad at dunois because they went on the wrong side of the river and he was the wind changed and and they were able to get the supplies of the city so uh, Dunois was converted. All right, well, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, and just so it's very easy just to go past that and just say, all right, that's that's sort of a little bit of history. But for me, it was it's it's a real just a whole area of contemplation. This whole arrival, meeting Dunois, Dunois, who seems to be one of the people graced with a phenomenological orientation so as to facilitate her mission, just as I think John Demetz was. So that's something to think about. I hope that you will contemplate that. Think a little bit about it, and don't forget to run over to heroic-hearts.com and start listening to Amy and I talk about Joan of Arc from Mark Twain's perspective. So we're going to keep going. We're, we're in Orleans now. So we're, we're where the action is, is taking place. So we'll 
we'll, we'll move a little bit further next time. I hope I've given you something to think about. And God bless you, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks. Bye-bye.